Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Exodus chapter 16, which can be found on page 110 in your pew Bibles. This is Exodus uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 18. Uh, This is shortly after uh, Moses has brought the Israelites out from slavery in Egypt. They have crossed through the Red Sea. Uh, They are not yet to Mount Sinai. This is an in-between time. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We ask that as we hear your word read and proclaimed today, God, that you would give us ears to hear. God, that you'd help us not to hear what we want to hear, but that we would hear what you are saying. God, we pray that you would help us to understand. And God, we pray that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive um, your message into our hearts and into our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Turning then to our New Testament lesson. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And this is Paul praying for uh, the Ephesian church. 
church in Ephesus. This is on page 1817 in your pew Bibles. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Um, after talking through uh, God's plan of reconciliation in Jesus, uh, how God has made us right with him and right with each other, and has brought in Jews and Gentiles alike, he says then this prayer, verse 14, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, well, it is fall in West Texas, and you know what that means. It means that the season for armchair quarterbacking has begun, right? For those of you who do not participate in that particular sport, let me explain how it works. You watch a football game from the stands or from the comfort of your own home in your armchair, and you see what the quarterback does, and then you proclaim loudly how they're doing it all wrong. That, that's how this works. And you tell them what they should be doing, and if you were in their position, how you would have done it differently and better and all that. This is how armchair quarterbacking works. It is a shame they don't give out awards for this thing because I'm pretty sure I could win. But that's the idea. Everybody's pretty sure they could win on that um, because we have a, a good perspective on the game and we know uh, what ought to happen and we have no stake in the game. <laughs> and uh, one of the, I don't know if you've seen this. This is, this is fun. Uh, my brother showed me some videos that ESPN did a while back. It was a series they were doing where uh, they took people who tweeted uh, during the game about players and what they did not do and how I could do better than that kind of thing. And then they flew them out and had them actually attempt what it was that they said they could do. And so there was a, a guy who was going to kick a 50-yard field goal, and the, somebody tweeted about that. Oh, this is, I could have made that, whatever. So they bring him out, and he tries it. And uh, not only did he think that the field goal the guy was kicking was much shorter than that, <laughs> They're like, no, here's where it was, the one you talked about. And so they put him out there, and he tries to kick, and it just you know, dribbles along the ground. He did nothing. And then they have him actually apologize to the camera <laughs> afterwards. And he's like, yeah, I didn't realize. I mean, 50 yards, that's like four football fields. <laughs> you, you clearly have an excellent perspective on this game, sir. Anyway, the reason I bring this up <laughs> is... Uh, this is something that we do, you know, during football season with quarterbacks, but it's often something that we do uh, as people with God all the time, right? 
So something happens and we say, that's not how to do it. You know, put me in charge for a little while. I know what you should have done. And that's not it. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Has anybody ever been in that situation where you find yourself armchair quarterbacking God? I had a conversation with a friend recently, and he talked about you know, the sovereignty of God and how God is over all. And he said, you know, a lot of times the way that we think about that is in terms of his power, that he could do anything. And he said, and that's actually that's true. He could do anything. He has the power to do all these things. But it's almost that belief that then makes us think, well, then you're doing things wrong because if you have the power to do X, Y, or Z and you didn't do X, Y, or Z, then you've got all the power for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and he said, but when we think of his sovereignty, not just in terms of power, but how he's over everything, not just because he's more powerful than everything, but he's also over everything because he is so super smart. That he has a wisdom that is above every other wisdom. This is what uh, Paul talks about to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, where he talks about the, um, the... Foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In other words, we're not dealing with an equal. When God does not use his power in the way that we would use it, there's a sense in which we have to say, you you must know better than I do. I am not the quarterback on the field. I am not uh, on the throne of all heaven and earth. This is uh, it's God's position for a reason. Anyway, and I mention all that. So what the passage we're looking at today in John, we have a very familiar story. One, I'm sure you know of this one. This is actually one of those stories um, that people know whether they've read the Bible or not. One of the reasons we know this story is because uh, there are not a lot of miracles that show up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on all four of them, all four of the gospel accounts. They all tell some, but as John points out later, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, we wouldn't have room for the books that would be written. He did a lot of stuff. And so they've each picked some things to tell about uh, as they explain who Jesus is. And this story that we're about to read, Matthew wrote about it because this is important for you to know this story that Jesus did this. Mark wrote about it, said it's, it's really important that, you know, of all the, you got to know this. Luke wrote about it, and John also writes about it. All four of them mention this particular uh, miracle. So we're going to read it. We're going to talk about why this is important. Um, but I want you also to have kind of an ear out as we go through this for the armchair quarterbacking of Jesus that goes on throughout. Here we go. Sometime, this is John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, 
Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces so that, that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. There we have it. This is a story that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, if you want to know about Jesus, you've got to know this story. And it's one that you've probably heard before. Whether you've read it yourself before or not, you probably are familiar with this story. And in fact, you've probably heard it uh, taught on enough that there's a pretty good, I, pretty good guess that you have some idea of what this story is about. Unfortunately, there has been enough... Uh, not good teaching on this story, that you may have heard the story and understood it to have a very different uh, meaning. So just a show of hands here. Has anybody ever heard this particular story as a way of um, highlighting the boy who shared his lunch and how the people then all started sharing their, uh, their food because they were inspired by his generosity? And so that's what this miracle really is, is an overflowing generosity. Anybody heard that one before? Some, Yeah. Now, that's out there. Now, <laughs> if you read it carefully, I really don't think there's room for that in this story. That is not the way that John describes it. When he talks about uh, how Jesus gave, gives thanks, and he breaks the bread, and then he distributes that, and they eat that. That is what they're eating. They're not eating something else that then the other people start sharing. Has anybody ever heard the... Um, the teaching on this that really what happens is, you know, it is a small amount and there are a lot of people. And so everybody just kind of gets a little bit, but that little bit is sort of a reminder of uh, the whole thing. And how, anybody ever heard that one before? It's more like, okay, that's out there too. That's out there too. I, I think there's no room for that one either. As, um, as it says, they each had uh, as, what is it, as much as they wanted. Yeah. Distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. If, if you have five small little loaves, not really, I mean, it's flatbread, not like the loaves we normally have. Uh, but you have five small loaves and two fish. That's not enough. I mean, that, Philip is right. That's not enough for everyone even to have a little bite. And especially if all you're getting is a little bite to then say, that was enough. Everyone had as much as they wanted. It'd have to be pretty gross bread for a little bit to be there as much as you wanted, right? But no, they're actually getting getting full, and then there's twelve baskets full left over. There's actually more left over than there is at the beginning of where we started. Um, <clears throat> those of you who have been in our Wednesday night Bible study should have your uh, kind of antenna up for when you hear the number twelve. 
And you go, well, there's something to that, right? There's got to be something to that. Well, hang on. First, let's take a look at, um, at Philip and Andrew. These are the two disciples who kind of speak up in the midst of all this. And I want us to see uh, how we tend to view the situations we encounter very much like they did. Where they are, um, they've come across the Sea of Galilee, small lake, about eight miles uh, across the way they were going. And they get over there, and then the people still are coming. Right? They're not getting away by themselves anywhere. They kind of go away by themselves, Jesus and his disciples, and other people are just coming. And why does it say that they're coming? I'll read it again. It says, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So Jesus had already healed some people. We've talked about that. They, these people saw that, and they said, okay, we're, we're going to go over there. We want to see more stuff, or maybe we have uh, issues of our own that need to be healed. So that's why they're going over there. It's because they have seen him do amazing things. So they go over there. So here's what the disciples now see. Great. Here we were. We're coming over here by ourselves. And not only are we not by ourselves, but now there are a bunch of needy people coming our way. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where uh, you think you're going to have some time away from, uh, from all that, the stresses of life. And then instead of getting any time away, you have people just at you. I need this. I need this. I need this. I need this. You know that feeling? <laughs> All the moms in the room are like, yes. <laughs> uh, but that's where they are. But it's not a few people. This is a lot of people. 5,000 men plus women and children. They're all coming, and you just see this swarm of people. They're all going to need something. They're all going to want something. And what do you do? Um, there's an introduction to a song I love. It's a great song. It's an almost even better introduction uh, by David Wilcox. And as he's talking about playing guitar and singing a song in a uh, a room where he's like nobody's listening it's they're all it's all uh like everybody's there they're drunk and it's just it's what am i even doing here so he says you know you kind of look out at everybody there in that environment and he says you know what do they need well i don't have that (laughs) I love that feeling of helplessness where he's like, I look out and I see the need. I can't do anything about that. And I think that's the position the disciples are in. They see the people coming and they know they're all going to want something. And they say, we can't do anything about this. The situation is more than we can handle. It's more than we can do. What they need is not what we have. And it's in this moment of their own feeling of helplessness in the situation that Jesus turns to Philip. That's beautiful, isn't it? Jesus turns to Philip in this moment of helplessness and says, Hey, Philip, (laughs) where should we buy bread for these people to eat? I was pointed out, Philip's actually from Bethsaida, which is in the area where they are. So he's kind of the local guy. So it's almost like, Hey, Philip, you're the expert here. (laughs) Tell us where the nearest grocery store is. And Philip's like, you are out of your mind. We don't have anything around here that can feed this kind of a group. 
This would be like, you remember when uh, Impact Group came here several years ago? And we had, uh, I mean, it's like 400 high school kids uh, here in El Dorado. And, you know, one of the things you got to do is feed all these people for a week. Now, had nobody from Impact been here before, had they not made arrangements ahead of time, they could have just showed up and said, okay, um, so where's the restaurant in El Dorado where we could all go eat? Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, you might finish getting your meal by the time you leave at the end of the week. I mean, that's, you, there is nowhere that's going to be able to feed that many people on that short of notice. And so we had to make plans ahead of time. Well, here they are. All these people are coming. And Jesus turns to Philip. So where do we go? <laughs> where do we go get food? And Philip responds, kind of like an armchair quarterback, kind of like I think we would normally in this situation, which is you're out of your mind. There, if we had, when he actually says 200 denarii, or uh, more than half a year's wages, it wouldn't even get enough bread for each person to have a bite. Don't you understand the significance, the, the scale of the problem we're facing, Jesus? This is a huge amount of people. They're all going to need to eat a lot, and we don't have that kind of resources. We don't, there's nowhere you can go to get that. This is, this is not a solvable problem. And, of course, John points out to us, Jesus did not say this because he's out of ideas. As Jesus is like, uh-oh, I don't know what to do. Philip, what do we do? He says this to test Philip because Jesus already knows what he's going to do. The question is, uh, does Philip know what to do? And the answer is no. Philip has no idea what to do. Well, what about Andrew? Andrew seems almost like the hero of the story because here he is like, here we go. We've got uh, what this little boy has. We'll bring that up here and that will solve the problem, right? No, that's not actually what Andrew does. He does not bring this forward and say this will solve the problem. He brings this forward and says, and this is not going to (laughs) help. This does nothing to even put a dent in the problem that we have. Like, everything that we have to offer is nothing. That's it. That's what we have. But then you know how the story goes. Uh, He says, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Great question, Andrew. How far will they go among so many? And Jesus almost like with a twinkle in his eye says, watch and see. And then he takes, he takes the bread, and then what does he do? Some sort of magic trick? Does he say any sort of bizarre phrases? Abracadabra? No. What does he do? It is, it is so wonderfully understated. He takes the bread, looks up to heaven, just give thanks. That's it. He thanks God for what they have, what he has given, the ways that he has provided. And he breaks the bread and he distributes it. And as the bread makes its way around and around and around and around and around, it doesn't run out. In fact, there's more and more and more as it goes. What does that look like? I don't know. But this ought to remind us of several things, and I think it ought to have reminded the people Uh, who are there of several things as well. This is why this is recorded, again, as another sign. This should be pointing us to something. 
about who Jesus is in the ways that he works. Uh, so, is this kind of tripping anything for you uh, as far as Old Testament connections? Is there any event in the Old Testament that uh, this relates to? I'll give you a hint. We already read one of them this morning. This is when the people are in the wilderness and they have no food, and God says, I will provide bread for you. Right? And so God is providing bread in the wilderness to feed his people. Well, that sounds pretty close to what's going on here. And what does God say uh, in, uh, in Exodus when he says that he's going to do this? He says, then you will... He said, well, hang on, I'm going back a little bit. Uh, in the morning you'll be filled with bread, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So he feeds them for a couple reasons. One, to feed them. <laughs> and two, so they will know that he is the Lord their God. And I think the same thing is going on here with Jesus, who feeds them to feed them, but also so they will know who he is, that he is the Lord their God. Uh, as he is doing, as we've already said, he does what the Father does. But there's another connection in the Old Testament. And this one, I think, is also um, not mentioned as much. But I think it's an important connection. And this is from the book of Second Kings. You may be familiar with uh, two guys by the name of Elijah and Elisha. These are some prophets in ancient Israel. And so we talked about um, last week the prophet who was to come that Moses had said, you know, when there's going to be another prophet that comes, but he's going to be greater than me, and when he comes, you need to listen to him, right? That's what these people respond with at the end uh, after having this meal. They say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they're thinking about that. Well, why are they thinking that he's the prophet instead of thinking that he's God? Here's, I think, the connection. And this is Second uh, Kings... Um, Mm-hmm. Chapter 4. Let's read it first. This is uh, verses 42 through 44. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Sound familiar? Yeah, there's a pretty good connection there as well. Okay. If you're familiar with the stories of Elijah and Elisha, there are quite a few miracles that are performed as uh, they demonstrate God's power uh, in and among the people of Israel. But one of the things that uh, people have noticed is that Elijah uh, performed, there are seven miracles that are recorded that Elijah performs. Then Elisha prays uh, or asks Elijah to pray that he would receive a double portion of his spirit. So before Elisha, Elijah leaves, Elisha wants a double portion of uh, Elijah's spirit. 
And then you read the stories about Elisha, and instead of seven miracles recorded, there are 14 miracles recorded. You go, well, would you look at that? It's double. Pretty easy math. Okay. The, the one who's to come, this Messiah that is to come into the world, uh, one of the things that had been prophesied is that Elijah would come first to prepare the way. And then we've looked at John the Baptist, as Jesus even said, he was the Elijah who was to come into the world to prepare the way. For who, well, who comes after Elijah? Elisha. And if you uh, read through the miracles that Elisha performs, some of those sound pretty familiar when looking at Jesus. He raises someone from the dead. He uh, feeds people a lot of bread. Uh, a lot of people with not very much bread, I mean. Uh, he heals someone from, with leprosy. I mean, you go, wait, wait a second. <laughs> and I think that we're meant to make that connection between Jesus and Elisha that when John the Baptist comes in the role of Elijah preparing the way, he's preparing the way for the one who's going to follow, and the one who's going to follow is going to be one even greater. But when we see Jesus, this is why I think the people, when he feeds a lot of people with a little bread, go, oh, it's the prophet. They get that part. But there is a scale difference here uh, going on, where Elisha, the miracle, is feeding a 100 people. And yet, you know, with some bread, and Jesus is now feeding many, many, many times that many people with much less bread. And so there is a scale difference. And so in the same way we look at uh, Elisha as performing double the miracles that Elijah performed, we look at the contrast between Jesus and Elisha and we say, yeah, there's some similarities, but it's not even just double. Like we're looking mathematically at a whole different scale here. That Jesus is not just another prophet like Elisha, but he is, as they rightly point out, the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, as we read on, we see that he is uh, the prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He is the priest. He's more than a priest. He is the king, but he's more than a king. It's what we looked at in Exodus, um, that we would know that he is the Lord, our God. Two more things quickly. One, I mentioned the 12 baskets, and I said you should have your uh, antenna up for that. What was with the 12 baskets? Pop quiz, how many disciples were there? 12. Who were the people who spoke up in this moment of not knowing what to do? It was two of the disciples. Who were the people that Jesus had come across with uh, in order to be by themselves? It was the disciples. So Jesus is there with 12 people. These 12 people are the ones who see the problem coming, the situation that they can't handle. There is no way that this is going uh, to work out. And then how much do they have left over? Enough for each one of them to have a basket of leftovers themselves as a reminder of the way that God is able to do, as uh, Paul says, more than all we can ask or imagine that he was able to solve the problem that the disciples could not solve. Uh, and so I think this is instructive for us as we put ourselves kind of in the position and we find ourselves in the position of Philip and Andrew all the time, saying, God, it's never going to work, it's never going to work, it's never going to work, it's never going to work. <laughs> Just trust me. I know what I'm doing. 
And if you reflect over the events of your life, I'm pretty confident you'll be able to, uh, to find those things that he has done in your past that you can look back on as signs that he knows what he's doing. Ways that he provided in situations where you saw no way through that. And yet he brought you through. When you saw no way that this could ever resolve well, and then it resolved well, and I don't know. I'm guessing you all have stories like that um, in your lives. These disciples now have one of those stories as well. And when they wrote these Gospels, they said, you, you got to know this. you got to know this uh, particular story. And then one more thing, that when these people uh, recognized that Jesus was the, the prophet, uh, they still missed it, right? And so it's one thing to recognize that he is uh, the prophet, the priest, the king. And yet, it says when they then wanted to make him a king by force, Jesus goes away. Withdraws to a mountain. We're told other places he goes to the mountain to pray. And here we have uh, a problem, a common temptation we're likely to fall into. And that is to recognize that Jesus is the one with the power, that he can do amazing things. And we say, yes, that's the guy I want on my side. So, because if, if somebody that powerful is on my side, then we can get done all the things that I want to get done. That's why these people want Jesus as the king. Look, he can heal the sick, and he can feed us with bread when there's not enough bread to go around. That's who we want as uh, the one, as the king in Israel, because he'll be the one with the power to drive out the Romans. He'll be the one to feed us. He'll be the one to make sure there's a chicken in every pot as it goes. And Jesus says... That's not it. That's not the king I am. What you are wanting is for me to be, um, to be your vending machine, to be your backup, to be the one who is uh, supplying whatever it is that you want in the moment. And he, that's, you've misunderstood the whole point of this. The whole point is that he is the prophet, he is the priest, he is the king. And, but what it means to be king is not to supply what you want. It's to lead well. And they are not ready, ready to follow him. They are wanting him to be the king with them still being in charge. Does that make sense? And I'm afraid for us uh, today, it is all too easy for us to fall in that same situation where we hear these stories and we say, yes, Jesus is amazing. And so, yes, I would like him to be king in my life but I still want to be in charge. And when we do it that way, what does Jesus do? He withdraws. That's not the way this this goes. For him to be the king means he's the one who's in charge. And if we understand the story well, we understand that he should be in charge because he is the one who can solve the problems that we cannot solve. But when we let him be in charge for real, that means no armchair quarterbacking anymore. That means we say, I trust that you know what you're doing. 
I trust that when you tell me this is the way to go, that that's the way I go because I believe that you know better than I know. That your perspective on all of this, on my life, on the lives of those around me, you know better than I know. And so I trust you and your ways to lead me in the way that I live. And that is very different than just wanting somebody to back us up on our own agenda. Very different. But that's the way this works. And it is in that, and in walking in faith, uh, just, that's what that means. Uh, where we actually have Jesus as the king over us that, that we experience this new life that he's talking about. I want to conclude with that prayer that we began with uh, from Ephesians 3. And I want you to hear about the, um, the power that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. Because this should be our prayer for ourselves and each other, the church around the world, for everyone. It's for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. For what? Power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.